0: Hi, I'm Callum Borshers, and as we work, we're thinking about how returning to the office is like the parable of the prodigal son. So he goes all the way back from this faraway country, and he thinks he's not going to be received well, and his father sees him from afar and calls the servants and says, go get the best robe, but we're going to put the ring on his finger, we're going to kill the fatted calf, and we're going to have a party, because he was gone and now he's back. This is As We Work from The Wall Street Journal, a show about the changing workplace and everything you need to know to navigate it. You just heard Bob Massey, a business consultant who's also an ordained minister. He says workers now returning to offices can relate to the prodigal son's warm reception. No fatted calf, but some are getting cash bonuses and new perks. But what about their coworkers who went back a long time ago or never left? They might identify with the prodigal's brother, who's stuck around and now feels taken for granted. The older brother is extremely angry that the father seems to have pulled out all the stops to celebrate the younger son's return, even though the younger son left the property, didn't do the work, and in the older brother's idea, just didn't deserve a reward. Coming up on the show, we talk to some of these people, the ones who kept working in person, and wonder, where's the hoopla for me? A whole bunch of companies, Comcast, Apple, and Goldman Sachs, to name a few, are aiming to get more people working in the office this fall. Many are coming up with new incentives to lure employees back, including upgrades to office spaces. Because why do you go into an office versus work remote? This is Bart Valdez, CEO of the medical staffing firm Ingenibus Health. As as we're re-looking at all of our offices, Denver was sort of our initial prototype of, of really eliminating more and more of the cubes to create collaborative spaces. We put a gym in there. Um, You know, we're certainly having the taco trucks come by every Tuesday. And we're certainly having, uh, you know, a lot of get togethers. But here's the tricky part. As Bart tries to entice his company's 1,500 desk workers back to the office, he's also in charge of about 10,000 medical workers who've never had the option to work remotely, the frontline workers of the pandemic. One of them is Grover Street, a traveling nurse from Colorado. In the early days of the pandemic, he and his fellow healthcare workers were showered with appreciation. You may recall people cheering from their balconies or applauding out their windows. Uh, It really made me
2: feel like I was doing something that was really helping not just the patients in the hospital, but it was helping families and people get through something that they
0: really didn't know about. Many other essential workers in other industries felt a sense of mission, too. Cherokee Lindsay continued to staff a brick-and-mortar bank in New York, while much of the financial sector worked from home.
2: I was in the branch, and and at one point, we were doors closed, and we were still helping clients through the door, through the cracks of the door, um, because, you know, again, it was was a pandemic, and everything was going crazy.
0: Cherokee moved to a corporate job within the same company, in time to join colleagues going back to a gleaming new office building and a food-filled employee appreciation event this summer. Having been in both camps, the one that stuck around during COVID and the one that came back recently, Cherokee hopes longtime in-person workers will be rewarded.
2: When there is certain opportunities to um, get promoted or get raises or whatever, I think that, that those things um, should definitely always be considered um, for those who you know have been there.
0: But in many cases, it's the people who left who were getting the raises or bonuses. Take nursing, where Grover Street works. Due to staffing shortages, nurses today can command five-figure signing bonuses for taking a new job or returning to an old one. Grover says he welcomes these returns because his profession badly needs reinforcements, but not everyone is so gracious. There are doctors and nurses that they're they're sour or, or bitter about. They have some resentment in people leaving and jumping ship and abandoning us and then coming back. You know, running from trouble, and then hey, now that it's taken care of, we're going to come back and help you guys out. This kind of resentment could lead to other problems for companies. Next, we'll speak with a management expert who says businesses that don't figure out how to appease new returners and office stalwarts could run into trouble. Stay with us. We just heard from several people who've worked in person for much or all of the past two years, and it's clear that integrating newly returning colleagues is a delicate process. Some people took risks and made sacrifices to stay on the front line or lead the charge back to the office. And they may feel taken for granted as companies toast the newcomers. Christy Rogers is watching this dynamic closely. She's an associate professor of management at Marquette University. She studies the workplace, and her focus lately is on people who quit their jobs because they feel disrespected. Welcome, Christy.
2: Hi, thank you.
0: Let's compare notes a little bit, Christy. I mean, I've seen companies that are throwing happy hours. Uh, You know, they're doing reunion parties. Uh, One law firm is offering $25,000 bonuses to return to the office for associates. I wonder what kind of perks that you're seeing for people who are coming back to the office these days that maybe weren't available to the first batch of workers.
2: Yes, interestingly you brought up the happy hours and in my survey of managers and of employees, managers said this was something they were doing that they felt was showing respect to their employees and the employees said, yeah, that's not exactly what we want. It was kind of a miss for them on the social stuff and they said I'd much rather have a regular check-in meeting. I'd much rather have some other kind of visibility that could move my career forward. Those are the things I really want and those are in That's not a $25,000 bonus. That's not, you know, a a gift of some sort. But it is something that tells them that who you are and what you are doing is something that's valued here.
0: When worker animosity builds around this, well, who came back and when did you come back? I mean, how does that actually manifest itself in the office? Because it, it seems like something like morale is hard to pin down.
2: Hmm. Yes. And I think it's, it's even hard for people to describe who are feeling this right now. When I've asked people recently, especially in person, I see them kind of look at one another and roll their eyes, but maybe not know exactly what to say. So yes, that resentment could build as they see people praised for something that they've been doing a long time, and that they're not getting that same appreciation for doing something that others are doing. So that might create create competition. Um, But another aspect of this is if these people have been in the office together, they've had an opportunity to, you know, have those spontaneous informal interactions that have likely made them closer. And that's going to be really hard for people who are just coming back in to break in. Unless they're intentionally welcoming, if they're not intentionally helping other people, you know, come back into that group or integrate into those, those inside jokes and, you know, new patterns and new routines that they've developed, it'll be very difficult to not feel that separation. An even worse scenario is when people feel very slighted, they tend to reciprocate. So we know from incivility research that incivility spirals. And if there's a, the, just those small, subtle jabs at others, like, oh, if you had been around during this time, or, oh, I see you made the trip to the office today, what was that like? Those slights and those comments. They're likely to be reciprocated, and when they do that, they escalate and they spread to others around them. Now, this completely undermines the whole purpose of bringing people back to collaborate. If there's so much tension within the team that they're not communicating willingly, they're just doing what they absolutely need to, and they're definitely not feeling safe enough to share ideas and to do better, more collaborative work than they've been able to do remotely. So that, I think, is a real risk here with this group. What is the
0: business environment that can create resentment among coworkers, Christy? I mean, is it as simple as human nature, you know, the the impulse to compare yourself and your treatment to others? or, Or are there actually flaws in the structures of our business cultures, do you think?
2: So a part of it is human nature in that we are most likely to engage in social comparison or look to what others are doing and compare ourselves in times of uncertainty. But I also, I I mean, I really can't stress enough that if people do not know what is valued by their leadership, by their managers, they are going to look for cues of what that might be or craft stories of their own. And that can be Really detrimental. So, if we are in situations like that and it becomes a really competitive workplace, that will be incredibly toxic for those people working in that environment.
0: You know, as you say, it's not always clear what is valued, but one thing that does come up frequently among bosses, anyway, is dedication, right? They want to see the workers who are dedicated to the company, to its mission. And some workers. Are more dedicated, right? I mean, in certain professions, there does seem to be a reasonably clear correlation between your dedication and working in person during the pandemic. I mean, medicine comes to mind, for instance. But I'd like to sort of test that connection in other fields, Christy. I mean, is there a reliable way to measure dedication or, or a scientific way to measure it in office jobs that could be done remotely?
2: Mm-hmm. I think the short answer is no. There's not an easy way to measure that, especially if some people are in person and some people are remote. And that's why there's been so much conversation lately about proximity bias. And that's all about the availability of information. So if some people are around and I can see, oh, you are staying late tonight, and that must mean you are really dedicated, but I have no idea what your peer is doing at home or if they've worked just as late or later... Each one of those is a data point that that manager is using to evaluate. And if the focus is on the work itself, that makes it easier to measure. If we can understand, uh, you know, what is the work product we're trying to create? What does a contribution look like from this person? Both the person in that role understands their role expectations, but then the manager understands what does it mean for that person to be performing well?
0: So dedication is hard to measure. And another concept that's sort of hard to measure or define is fairness, right? I mean, and that's one of the central issues here between the camps of people who've been back for a long time and those who are just coming back now, because fairness isn't defined the same way by everybody. Does it mean treating everybody or setting the same standards for every single employee? Or does it mean tailoring your in or out of office expectation to your job function, right? And it seems like companies haven't quite figured out how to create a feeling of fairness for everybody, have they?
2: Sure. Fairness is a a very difficult thing to nail down and say, okay, we've got it now moving forward. we, We don't have to worry about this anymore. What I would say is more important for managers to be focusing on is how do we make this a conversation that's okay to have? And how do I acknowledge that I don't understand where those hot buttons about fairness are going to be with every employee, but how do I get them to a point where they're comfortable bringing something up? And when it comes to respect, when any cue is interpreted, it's against the backdrop of that person's actions more broadly. So if I've had a pattern of really good interactions with you as my boss, and you are typically very fair, and then there's one instance that seems way off, I'm more likely to approach you about that and say, hey, what's going on? Let's talk about this. Help me understand. Rather than saying, this is a terrible place. These people are unfair. I deserve something better than this. And this clearly isn't the place for me anymore.
0: So what can bosses do, Christy? I mean, the labor market is still tight enough that recruiting and retaining, for that matter, top talent often requires dangling some incentives, especially if you want to coax people into physical offices. But how do you do that without making the people you already have or the people who've been in the building for a long time feel like they're getting overlooked?
2: My advice for managers at this point is think about how you can engage those people to bring them into the process of figuring this out. If they are people who are becoming resentful because they haven't been appreciated enough for all that they've given and the dedication that they've displayed, that likely means that they are very committed to the company and they want others to acknowledge that. They want to make things better and have ideas for doing that. So how do you get them involved in the how do we move forward? I also think that managers need to be asking themselves Is this a symptom of something else? Is there unresolved conflict that might have been here, carrying over either from remote work or from a long time ago?
0: I guess a little anger and frustration isn't always a bad thing if, as you say, it's a signal that employees really care about their companies and want to make it a better place. Christy Rogers, Associate Professor of Management at Marquette University, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you. Another way employees have been expected to show they care about their jobs is doing a little extra work, serving on that company committee or doing a favor for a colleague. But those additional duties can add up, suck up too much time, and get in the way of your real job. Coming up, we get some advice on how to get out of them. And finally today, our pro tip, where one of our life and work columnists answers tactical questions about the workplace. We've been talking about these sometimes thankless tasks that come with being a steady presence in the office. Rachel Feintzig is here to tell us how to ditch the scut work that's clogging our calendars and holding back our careers. Thanks for joining us again, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. So busy work may not be a new problem, but it can feel bigger as people return to offices, right? Because certain tasks like planning that luncheon and cleaning up afterward are part of the office life, not the work from home life. And it can be hard to go back to the old ways after enjoying our remote freedom. You're saying we don't have to. So explain (laughs) this art of saying no without looking like a jerk.
1: Right. Well, part of it is there's more to do now and it's also kind of harder to ghost people when you're kind of staring them down by the coffee machine. I think one of the keys is it's not that you're going to do 0% of this, right? Like if you did no busy work, no scut work, helped out no one else at the office, you would probably be fired. But there's a balance so that you're not kind of having your schedule be overtaken by the stuff that's just not getting you ahead at all.
0: Let's suppose we do master the art of declining gracefully, Rachel. It seems to me there's still the challenge of knowing when you should say no.
1: Yeah. The, the second part of this is how to say no. And the first part is like, should you be saying no in the first place? One helpful tip that I, I was talking about with a coach is this idea of like, is this something you could ever see be mentioned on on your performance review? Like who who would care about this thing? Because there are certainly things that are more scut work like that might be worth it if they're for the right people, or it kind of gets the right recognition in your company or externally. And then there's other stuff that like, not only is it not helping you, but It's not really helping the company or like anyone else, you know, it's like really just checking a box and everyone's just continues to do it, even though it's useless.
0: You know, there are just so many yes people out there, Rachel, who I know want to guard their time more carefully, but they also don't want to lose their reputation for kindness. You know, I haven't forgotten that you helped with my orientation when I joined the journal. Uh, you made a phone call while walking the dog, I think. <laughs> and uh, it was something I remember and appreciate. So I guess it is possible, right, to cut back on the extra duties without becoming completely selfish, right?
1: Well, I mean, the first step is like multitasking, right? Like if you if you can walk the dog while like orienting a new a new colleague, why not? Why not do that? But yeah, um like I said, you you still want to be seen as a team player, but you want to set some boundaries. And I think people respect that too. I mean, you want to think about it like you still want to give this person what they want. So put put yourselves in in their shoes. Can you recommend someone else to do this? Can you recycle work that was done last month? Can you solve this problem without kind of clogging your calendar? Um, And then also Negotiating, you know, like can you can you say I will take this one on, but but next next year I would like an assignment on that plum committee. Um, so there is room for negotiation here, and I, I think people I think people miss that. I think people say yes and they say yes and they say yes, and then they get to their breaking point and they just kind of scream no, and it becomes this big thing. And there is kind of this middle ground where you can kind of play around and see what's really necessary and what's not, and keep people happy while kind of preserving your sanity too.
0: Well, Rachel Feinzig, Work and Life columnist, thank you for taking time for that dog-walking phone call for me and for taking time to explain how to ditch the scut work. We appreciate it.
1: Anytime, Cal.
0: The pandemic put some rust on the old interpersonal skills, and norms are changing anyway. What even are the do's and don'ts these days? Some of you have strong opinions.
1: Waiting all day for the return of a slack, you know, inquiry is...
0: is pretty much the most disrespectful thing <laughs> you can do uh, on a Slack channel. next time on the show we're going to business etiquette boot camp like the show tell your friends to subscribe and give us a five-star review on your favorite platform as we work as a production of the wall street journal charlotte gartenberg is our producer jonathan sanders is our booking producer scott soloway is our supervising producer Jessica Fenton is a pizza stone that fits in any oven, and our sound engineer. Our music was composed by Hans Dale Sue. Kateri Yoakum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Callum Borschers. Thanks for listening.